The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. As we're entering into the mystery that is peeling back uh, the Magi, who were these individuals? This week, I need to take you with me to Ravenna, Italy. I want you to imagine this picturesque little city right there on the coast, narrow winding streets that open up to these beautiful piazzas. I want you to imagine a sunny afternoon, you're sitting there drinking a crisp San Pellegrino, the Caprizi salad, right outside these beautiful basilicas and cathedrals. This particular city is known as basically the center, like the capital of the mosaics of Italy. Some of the most beautiful mosaics that you can find are there, and they're very, very old. And this particular basilica, the Saint Apollonari Basilica, has one mosaic in particular that is 1,500 years old. And it is in the mid-500s. This particular mosaic shows one of the oldest pictures, not the oldest, but one of the oldest, maybe the oldest mosaic, but one of the oldest uh, pictures and artistic representations of the Magi. And it's this right here. You can see it's just in in real life, you could imagine all of those those pieces of, of gold mosaic, those gold glass and stone just reflecting the natural light coming in would be just Dazzling. You can just imagine the work and the detail going into a mosaic like that. But what's so interesting about this particular mosaic from the mid-500s, they estimate sometime in the 540s, is that this is the f- one of the first times, maybe the first time, that in all the legend of the three kings, that their names are listed. Now, almost certainly these names are just legendary. They, they first appear in the 6th century in the 500s. This is the first time probably they're depicted artistically. But if you look above these uh, three wise men, these three kings, you see the names uh, Belthazar, Melkor, and Gaspar. These three names. You see that there's one man that is uh, middle-aged, one that's young, one that is older, Um, representing three different generations. Sometimes through history, they're depicted representing the three continents of the known world. Um, They're not depicted like that in this, but sometimes they're depicted as one coming from Africa, one coming from Asia, one coming from Europe. They represent all of humanity coming before Jesus. But in this this particular representation, they're giving names. Now, again, those names are probably legendary, but that first name, Belthazar, is interesting, and it may be a clue for us as to who are these magi. And that name, Belthazar, that's then passed down, and in fact, uh, you'll see that is, is held, as according to legend, even today, that one of the kings was apparently named Belthazar. What scholars believe is that that name, Belthazar, comes from a name that appears in the Bible, Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar is the Babylonian name for Daniel. And what that means, and why that's significant to us, is that means that ancient Christians saw a tie-in. They're not saying that that is Daniel. Of course, Daniel and the wise men were separated by something like 500 years. But what you see is that even ancient Christians are seeing what we're seeing today, that there's a link between these wise men and the book of Daniel. It's another clue. We're searching in this series to who these wise men are. And if you're just joining in with us, um, we're trying to figure out who these guys are. Why did they come all the way from the east to find in a small town, eventually a small little village of Bethlehem outside Jerusalem? Where did they come from? Why did they come? Why did they bring gifts? Who were they? And we've started to peel back some of the layers over the last couple weeks. For starters, um, Matthew, in our English translation, the book of Matthew, we use the word wise men. 
But the actual Greek word is magi or magoi right here. And of all the names, there's a lot of different Greek terms that Matthew could have used. He did not use, he wrote in Greek, he did not use the Greek term for king. When he, by using the term mag, magi or magoi, he's talking about a particular guild of individuals that were highly regarded, probably they were very influential, probably very wealthy, they would advise kings and they would use things like astrology or dream interpretation and other things to advise kings. They were an entire guild. But still, even of that guild, there's so many different terms Matthew could have chosen. He could have chosen um, another term for, there's other terms for wise men. He could have chosen the term enchanter or Chaldean, but he chose magoi, which is interesting because magoi is only used in one small cluster in one book of the Bible, the book of Daniel. In fact, in, in it's not only in Daniel, it's in the parts of Daniel that reference the Babylonian kingdom. And so what we, what we believe is that Matthew's drawing our attention back to the book of Daniel in particular, and that this is a guild that we know biblically Daniel was a part of. Daniel was trained to be uh, a magi. Daniel became the chief of magi, chief magi, it says in the book of Daniel. And in succeeding uh, administrations and succeeding dynasties, Daniel was regarded as a legendary chief of the magi. And so as he wrote down the book of Daniel, it's easy for us to assume, we can assume that the succeeding generations of Magi for 500 years had the book of Daniel from this very famous Magi. And in that, God spoke to him about one particular king that would come and that they should be watching for this particular king. And so they brought these gifts. And last week we talked about, look, if they know that a king is coming, then we know that they're going to bring him gold, and that ties right into the book of Daniel 2. We talked about that last week. But all that to say is what we're trying to do in this series, we're trying to peel back who were these guys about a group that has captivated Christians throughout history. What we are doing is we're going back to the book of Daniel, and I want to draw your attention to one particular chapter in Daniel. This is a chapter that the Magi who visited Jesus would have had access to. This is Daniel chapter 7. This is going to give us a key piece of information. And so I want you to open up to Daniel chapter 7. Now, as you open up there, let me just give you a heads up on how the book of Daniel works. The first half of Daniel, Daniel's chapters 1 through 6, reads like history. It's very intuitive. It reads like a story. It's written to describe something, a moment in several moments in history. The second half of Daniel, Daniel chapters 7 through 12, is Daniel recording these visions, the, this prophetic word that he gets from God, and that reads like the prophetic genre of literature, it reads like prophecy, which is typically very foreign to us. It's sometimes harder for us to read because it has this swirling imagery. It's really beautiful, but it's swirling imagery and metaphor. And oftentimes, as moderns, we read the prophetic genre and we say to ourselves, how in the world am I supposed to understand this? And the keys to unlocking this part, this type of scripture, is to look through other parts of scripture and let it interpret it for us. I wanna show you what Daniel chapter seven, we're gonna start in verse 13. We're just actually gonna look at two verses here in Daniel chapter seven. And just bear in mind, this is something that the, that the Magi who came and visited Jesus, this is something that they had access to. Look at Daniel chapter seven. We're gonna pick it up in verse 13. Here's what it said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
Now pause with me there for a second. Let's just break this apart. First he says, hey, I had a vision in the night, obviously something from God, and I wrote it down. And he says this. First thing he says is, I saw one, behold, I saw someone, someone coming on the clouds, a son of man. Now, this is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament, this term son of man. And at its very basic level, the son of man is referring to just simply a human. In other words, a descendant of Adam and Eve. It's a son of humans. It is a human. But once we get into some of the prophetic books, this term, son of man, starts to get a little tricky. And it gets tricky here in this passage. This is one of the anchor passages that starts to change this idea of a son of man. Because look at what it said that this son of man is doing. It says the son of man is coming on the clouds. Now, when you think of someone coming on the clouds, the only person I think of is Cupid, okay? That's the only individual that I can imagine coming on the clouds, and Cupid is not real. I hate to burst your bubble, but not real. Okay, when you hear the term coming on the clouds, this is one of those terms. Okay, what does that imagery mean? And there's a very specific meaning of that phrase, coming on the clouds. Throughout the Bible, it's listed a couple times. Let me just briefly, quickly read to you some of those instances. It's in Isaiah 19. Listen to what it says. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. When you hear the term riding on the clouds, that is a statement of divinity. That is a statement of someone that's something that only God does. Only God rides on the clouds. Let me give you another example. Psalm 104, verse 3, talking about God. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds, the clouds, his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Now look at then what he's saying about this particular individual. Okay, I know this is getting a little technical, but hang in here with me. He says, I had a vision. One, like a son of man, a human. But he's riding on the clouds. So there's something about him that's divine. And he's standing before the ancient of days. Again, a descriptor of God. Now let's keep going. Verse 14, what does he say? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay. He said, I had a vision, I see one like a son of man. So he's human, but he's coming on the clouds. He's divine, okay? And he has, he's coming to establish a kingdom. And he says, this kingdom is for all peoples, all nations, and all languages. This is a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy, this is an actual ancient relief of King Nebuchadnezzar that archaeologists have found. This guy, according to Daniel chapter 2, had a really scary dream. He had a bad dream that he believed meant something. And he had a dream about a statue. And probably the statue was of himself. That's why it freaked him out. And the head was gold. The shoulders and arms were silver. The torso was bronze. The legs were iron, and then even at the feet, the iron was starting to turn to clay. And he had, in this dream, he saw a huge rock that only God could have cut out. It was natural. It was from God. Cut out this rock. This rock hit the feet of the statue, shattered the statue into splinters, like so small that the wind blew them away. And then that rock grew all the way into a giant mountain to the ends of the earth. I think probably what freaked Nebuchadnezzar out is that the, the interpretation is pretty obvious. But Daniel ends up interpreting it for him. 
And he says, you're the head of gold. There's going to come another kingdom that is also a worldwide kingdom that is not as strong, but is going to take over from you. And then another kingdom, and then another kingdom. And in that fourth kingdom, God will set up his kingdom. It will be all over the world, and that kingdom will last forever. And so what we looked at last week is that 500 years later, throughout the generations, the Magi knew to watch the kingdoms. There was four worldwide kingdoms. There was Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And during that kingdom, one came to set up a kingdom that would infiltrate every kingdom, go to the ends of the earth, and would set up, would set up that everlasting kingdom of God. But if you know what happens next, Nebuchadnezzar says, thank you, Daniel, appreciate that. It seems like that's from God. Then promptly builds his own statue, you remember? But he builds a statue of himself of all gold, saying, no, I'm establishing the eternal kingdom. Now, obviously, history says that the prophecy in Daniel 2 was correct. He would not stand. But what he did is in Daniel 3, he sets up a golden statue, and he sends out word to all of the world, and it says this, to all peoples, nations, and languages. Same wording. When you hear the music, bow and worship me. Fast forward, Daniel chapter 7. The revelation to Daniel goes further, and it says that one is coming and repeats what we already know. There's an everlasting kingdom. That is the kingdom that is for all peoples, nations, and languages. It's God's kingdom that will come and will be to the ends of the earth. But there's a new wrinkle that is extremely important for uh, for what the Magi, as they would have been studying through the generations. It's not just that it would be a king would come and would set up a dynasty. It's not just a king would come and would establish such a long kingdom that it lasts long after him. No, there's something different. This kingdom is given to this king to rule. It's not just the kingdom's everlasting. His rule is everlasting. He reigns everlasting. He's on the throne forever. Specifically, how could someone be on the throne forever? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, the best he could hope was that he would start a kingdom, start a dynasty, found a dynasty, that his descendants would rule forever. But no, Daniel 7 ratchets it, it up a notch. It's not just a king starting a kingdom. It's a king that will rule for all time. How could a king possibly do that? It would have to be God himself. What, they, um, what Daniel 7 says is that one is coming who's a son of man who rides on the, cloud, on the clouds. One is coming who represents humanity and divinity. One is coming who's going to be all man and at the same time all God and will rule on a kingdom that is on earth, but it's the kingdom of God. Do you follow me? It's not just a king. It's God in the flesh as king. Now, ultimately, this is pointing to the fact that the Magi came and they came to Jesus and they thought that this particular individual was that God-human king. But man, that's a pretty big claim. I mean, did... Um, Jesus ever claim something like that? The humble shepherd, the simple rabbi, meek and mild. I mean, maybe you've heard people say, I mean, Jesus never claimed to be, to be God. I mean, he was just a rabbi. Then people later thought that he was God. Well, it's interesting, you know, Matthew chapter 2 is where the account of the wise men are. If you go to the other end of the same book, Matthew chapter 26, it's at the end of his life. And Jesus is standing before the priests, the chief priests, 
the night he was betrayed, Thursday night before he's crucified. And they're just throwing all these false accusations against Jesus. And Jesus is just standing there silently. And it's infuriating the Sanhedrin and the high priests. And I want you to see what they ask. Just hear this. This is Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to pick it up in verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Just tell us straight, Jesus. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the who? You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the what? Coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Oh, yeah. They said, Are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? He says, Interesting that you say that. And then he doubles down and says, Essentially, I'll take it a step further. I'm the long prophesied awaited God man that is going to be coming on the clouds and will be seated on the throne at the right hand of the ancient of days to rule for all time. That may be confusing language for us moderns, but as you can see, it was not confusing language for the, for the Sanhedrin, the high priest who knew the scripture. They knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying, I'm the king of kings, the divine human king, boldly. Does that encourage you, Christian, that Jesus announced that boldly in the face of his enemies? That's who Jesus was. That's who he claimed to be. He was absolutely crystal clear about this. Okay, let's take this piece of information and let's pull some things here together. All right, let's start here in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, we know that in Daniel chapter 7 that, oh great, I have, a, I have an eye. I knew at some point this was going to happen to me, okay, but here we go. Oh boy, now it's even worse. Okay, Daniel 7, we know that the Magi had access. We, we, we can easily presume that the Magi had access. The Magi of Jesus' day had access to Daniel chapter 7. Okay, but here's the thing. When they came to visit Jesus, it says specifically in Matthew, it says that they fell down and they worshipped him. They knew something about this, about this king. They didn't just bow. They didn't just pay homage to him. Matthew 2 says they worshipped him. Why did they worship him? Well, if they have Daniel chapter 7, they knew that this is a king that comes on the clouds. He's a, he's a divine king. He's a king that is God and man. And so that then explains why they brought one of the gifts that they brought. They brought incense. We know last week from our study out of Daniel chapter 2, we know because Nebuchadnezzar tried to set himself up as the true golden eternal kingdom, the golden king, which he wasn't, that there was one who would come that is the true, pure, untarnishable, eternal, setting up the true eternal kingdom. But this particular king didn't just set up the ultimate kingdom. He will rule for all time because he's God. He, would, he is a, he is, he's the God-man who will reign, and so they brought him Frankincense. Why would they bring him frankincense? Why is that the gift that, that they would bring? Well, frankincense, I've got an um, example of frankincense. 
We use uh, frankincense in a modern way on like a, a stick of incense. They would probably pile it uh, like in a bowl or on an altar and they would burn it. And um, frankincense has a very, very potent smell. Um, it's got a kind of a, a spicy, earthy, kind of clean kind of smell. These are very, very fragrant. And they are almost always used around the world in many different religions, actually, in many, many different cultures, and many expressions of Christianity, it is used for worship. In fact, uh, we may not in our tradition associate incense with our practice of worship, but it might be the most commonly used way humans worship throughout the millennia, throughout the human history, and cross-cultural. Frankincense in particular goes all the way back to when God commanded Moses on how to set up how they worship. You can go all the way back to Exodus, Leviticus. Frankincense was a part of their worship. They would burn frankincense before God. Now, the interesting thing about frankincense is that God said, there's a very specific way I want you to burn frankincense. There's a very specific recipe, and in the Old Testament context, you could only offer incense in that particular way. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 10, you can go back and read it, two guys named Nadab and Abihu thought, well, how serious is God? And they took some incense, and they burned it in worship to God in their own way, their own made-up way. And they lit their, what's called a censer, this like, kind of like this large spoon or bowl. When they lit the censer with fire, fire came down from heaven and incinerated them. Leviticus chapter 10. Go check it out if you're brave enough. <laughs> Frankincense is something that God in the Old Testament context um, commanded um, them to use. It is a symbol of worship. And so they, it is fitting then that if these magi know that this is a king, they're going to bring him gold, and they're also going to bring him, because they know they're worshiping him, they're going to bring him frankincense. Now, here's an interesting thing. They didn't dare burn incense before him, but they did give him incense. Maybe that's instructive. There's something interesting there. Um, it could also be, very likely, they would be a very learned group of individuals. They would have access to a lot of religious literature. It could be that the Magi had access to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, um, verse 6. Listen to what this says. This is Isaiah. This is actually even before Daniel. This is what Isaiah prophesied. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, that's Arabia, shall, in the east, shall come, and they shall bring gold and what? Frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Look at that. 700 years before the time of Christ, it was prophesied that people would come with a caravan of camels from the east and would bring at least two gifts, gold and frankincense. Maybe the, maybe the Magi had access. It's easy to assume they had access to Daniel. Maybe they also had access to Isaiah and said, okay, these are the gifts we're supposed to bring. Gold because he's king. Frankincense because he's a God in the flesh kind of king. He's not only going to be a human king, a divine king. His reign will never end. But wait a minute. That leaves one of our gifts out. What about myrrh? You know, something interesting about myrrh, gold and frank frankincense were both extremely valuable, commonly traded, and would have been common gifts to bring to a king, especially gold, but also frankincense. That would not be an uncommon gift to bring to a king. Myrrh, on the other hand, you probably would never dare bring that to a king. Would have been a statement you didn't want to make. May even get you in trouble, like big trouble, like considered an inappropriate gift for the king. 
We've got more of these things that we got to cover. We're going to pick that up at our Christmas services about myrrh. We've got some more to think about. Where did the idea that it's a Christ figure come into their conversation with Herod? What about this star? What was the star? We've got more that we've got to uncover at our Christmas services, including what is the myrrh all about? Where did that come from? Especially if that wasn't prophesied, what made them think to bring myrrh? Why was that a gift? And once you find out why they probably brought it, you say, oh, they had to bring it. They had to dare bring it. They had to risk bringing that particular gift. But for us today... I want to think about this incense, and I want you to think about with me the idea that this, that the Jesus, this is king, is also divine. Because I think that idea of offering worship before Jesus is just so exactly what we in this particular moment of our society need to hear. But let me come at it working backwards. This past week, I was talking with some friends who uh, own and operate a restaurant chain. And they've actually um, managed to thrive. They've been very innovative. It's been extremely difficult, but they've thrived through this last season, which you can imagine in the dining industry is a hard thing to do. Many restaurants have, have shut down, but they've thrived. And I said, man, has it been difficult? And they said, oh, it's been very difficult. In fact, man, just... People are, especially on the customer service side, man, people just are so just angry right now. And I, and they, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine that. Even back when I was in seminary, I used to be a, a server. I used to wait tables at a restaurant. And I, rem, I remember, man, it stretches you. If, you're, if you wait tables, if you're a server, I mean, we got to take good care of servers because they have to deal with a lot. And I remember, man, we, we dealt with some things, especially if you make a mistake, man, you deal with a lot. I'll never forget the time I had a glass of red wine on a uh, I was carrying on a, um, on a tray, and I turned, and the red wine flipped over and splashed on a woman and her baby. She wasn't happy. Okay. I'll never forget the time that I heard a server came back in the kitchen. He just had his head in his hands. I'm like, what happened? I said, well, they said, well, our, our, uh, our table, they dug into their bowl of pasta and somehow in the bowl of pastas they're cutting through, they found a rubber glove. And we still to this day have no idea how that happened. They were not happy, okay? They were an upset group of individuals. All right, in the restaurant, you can deal with angry people sometimes, okay? And we asked them, hey, um, we said, hey, like, what do you mean? Like, so yeah, their people are angrier than usual. And I'm like, how do you get angrier than usual? I mean, there's angry people that come to restaurants. It's like, like people standing up on booths, shouting at people. It's like, wow. So we've had people throw things at, at servers. I'm like, wow, that is kind of next level. And I'm hearing something anecdotally that's kind of evidence for something that I kind of inherently know and you probably inherently know. We're in a moment in our society where people are just... There's, there's just anger. There's just anger that boils over so easily. It boils over so easily on social media, so easily at work, so easily on other family members, so easily in traffic. It just boils over so easily, and we know where it's coming from. This is a season of just that's full of anxiety and fear. And it's like our society right now, it's like, it's like the pressure gauge is like way over. Like people are, are just perpetually about to blow. I mean, there's just so much fear and anxiety. People are stretched and stressed out and just so easily to blow their top and get angry. And, and let's just follow that back. Okay, if there's, if there's that much stress and anxiety, if there's that much anger, that usually comes from a feeling of stress and anxiety. Where is anxiety fundamentally from? It's from realizing freshly a lack of control. If I feel like I have control, I have control over my life, I'm just walking along and everything's right, I got my finances right, I got my health right, I got my career right, I got my relationships right, and all of a sudden something disrupts the things, my plan, my control, having all my ducks in a row, if something suddenly disrupts that, all of a sudden I feel vulnerable, I feel out of control, and that's basically the definition of stress and anxiety. 
I'm worried about what's going to happen. I can't control the outcome of what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, I just feel so anxious. So anger is usually from anxiety, which is usually from a lack of control. And a, a, a lack of control comes from a reality that I don't have control. And a belief in God is a belief system that there is one who has control. God has all control. And any measure of influence or leadership we have has been granted to us by God to steward, but he can take it away very, very quickly. But fundamentally, what it means to believe in God is to believe he has control. I don't have control. I never had control. In fact, here's the, the irony. Fundamentally, worship of God. So let's think about incense for a second. It's one of the most common religious rituals. But there is a fundamental difference between religion and worship. And there's a sense in which all religion itself is the same. Religion tends to boil down to this fundamental principle. There's a list of spiritual activities that I do, and if I do those, I can gain God's favor, God's ear, God's blessing, if I light incense, if I pray enough, if I'm generous enough, if I, if I give enough, if I go to church enough, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'm close to God, loved by God, accepted by God, blessed by God. And so religion is fundamentally these tools we use to try to control God. And so that's why so often anger is because of anxiety, which is because of a lack of control. And when people are feeling lack of control, that's why so often with a lack of control, people retreat to religion. Suddenly get religious. Because they can't control their outcomes with their finances. They can't control their outcomes with their good health practices, with their good relationship skills, with whatever it is. So then they say, how else can I control? I've got to dig in and pray. And if I pray enough, if I go to church enough, if I give enough, if I'm kind enough, if I'm pure enough, if I'm holy enough, if I do these things, then God will bless me. And then when that doesn't work, then there's a real deep crisis. Because there's nothing left to control. See, religion boils down to control. It's just another way to control. But worship, true worship, is the surrender of control. It's, the, it's getting comfortable with the reality that if I'm feeling stressed, anxious, worrying, fearful, Listen, it's not that I'm suddenly out of control. I'm being made aware of a reality that's always been true. I've never been in control. Christian, get comfortable with the vulnerability that God is in control, not you. Learn a life. You want to know how to live with peace perpetually? Live a life that knows you are never in control. Learn a life that knows you're in submission to God. Because here's what happens. If you don't, then whenever, if it's, whatever it is that's a crisis, if it's your relationships, your health, your finances, your career, if you think you're in control and right now you're really vulnerable and you're, you're trying to pray and all of a sudden God blesses it, then once, one day when you do have success again, when you do have the appearance of stability, you'll pat yourself on the shoulder and say, I did it again. But if you seize this vulnerable moment to change what you're anchored to and realize you've never had control, don't have control, never will have control, God always has control, then when then success or restoration or stability is added back into your life, you will then say, clearly I did not control 
to get here. And instead, that blessing will turn into worship. Worship, we can celebrate that. Worship is fundamentally surrendering control. Okay, let's walk this out in our lives. There are some of you here that would say this. I like God, I like Jesus, but I'm not into man-made religion, okay? I don't like church, maybe more specifically, I love Jesus, but I don't do the church thing. Maybe at some point you've left church, maybe some of you watching online, it's because I just, it makes me uncomfortable to walk back into church because I'm done with organized religion, man-made religion. I'm just going to worship Jesus my own way. It's just me and Jesus. Let me caution you. You've just created another man-made religion. It's just you're the man who made it. And let me caution you, have the spirit of the wise men where you don't dare burn the incense, you just offer it to Jesus. And say, you instruct me. That's the way it's always been from the very beginning. God is saying, no, I, God's like, I don't like man-made religion. He says, but I will command you how to worship. And if worship is submission, submission to God, then we worship how God has prescribed. For those of you who don't like man-made religion, don't make your own religion to worship Jesus. Submit and surrender to Jesus. For some of you who say, man, I've had a bad experience with church. Yes, don't enter back into man's tradition, but do enter back into the bride of Christ, the people of God, because that's what Jesus has commanded us to do, to not forsake coming together. That's his prescribed religion. And so if worship is truly submission, we enter in with him. Second group of you. There's some that may be watching today or you're at Cooper City or you're here and you would say, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. But if you're honest, the only time you push into your faith is in a crisis. The only time you come back to church is Christmas, Easter, and when something really bad or scary is happening and you're realizing you're vulnerable. I'm gonna say this lovingly to you to share the truth as a pastor in your life. Maybe you're using religion to control God and that is not worship at all. There are people who call themselves Christians, but they're still controlling their own lives. They're their own gods. Jesus is not their God. To worship Jesus, making him our God, is to completely surrender all of life and bow our faces before Jesus as God, as King and God, day after day, and surrender every part of our lives to our God, knowing he is in control. <laughs> Lastly, Christian. Christian who has found this season to be a season dominated by fear, anxiety, stress, pressure. You're snapping at your family more than you typically would. You can't sleep as well. You're seeing stress in your body, which I think all of us can attest to. No one escapes that, I don't think, in a season like this. This is an opportunity. First of all, you don't have to live in that space. But trace it back. See that anger and, and ask yourself before the Lord, what am I anxious about? And you'll probably find some way that you've lost control. And don't try to regain control. Surrender it. Make peace with the fact that you're more vulnerable than you ever imagined you were. If the pandemic and medical stuff has made you feel vulnerable, you're more vulnerable than you realize. He's making your heart beat through this message. We could, we could all be gone before the end of the day, but rest in it. Finances have you feeling vulnerable? 
He has cattle on a thousand hills. Your father is not a billionaire. He owns the universe. Are you stressed about your career? He has a plan mapped out. He only, he's the master creative. He only writes masterpieces. And he's writing a masterpiece over your life because all things work together for good. What do you possibly have to be anxious about? Seize this moment. Live in the vulnerability that you have a God. His name is Jesus. He's in control, and you want him in control, not you. Don't take control again. Let me, let me end this by telling you the background of frankincense. Why is it such an amazing picture of worship because I want to tell you how they harvest frankincense. Frankincense is something that is harvested from the Boswellia tree in parts of Arabia and Africa. It's a tree that can grow in some of the hardest places in all of the world. They've said it can grow out of rock itself. And it grows out of that. And how frankincense comes is the sap will bleed out of the tree through. They will go to a tree. It will bleed and run down the tree, flow out of the tree. And they'll wait for it to harden like a resin and then chip it off, break it into small pieces, and then they sell it depending on its purity. But to get that sap to run out, what do they have to do? They go up to the tree and wound it. They go to the tree, they take a hammer and something like this, a tool that's like a large spike or chisel, and they go up to the tree and pierce it. They go up to the tree and they'll make a large scar. They'll stripe down the tree. They'll injure the tree is the language that they use. And what flows down from the tree, what flows down is what they harvest and turn into frankincense. And then they bring before God on the one day they could go behind the veil and they offer that which bled down from a tree before God and the cloud covered the mercy seat. And if the high priest went in there, the warning was, if you do not have incense covering the mercy seat, when you go into that one day in the Holy of Holies, you will die. Do you know what your incense before God the Father is, it's not your religion. It's not your generosity. It's not your prayers. It's not your kindness, your purity, your godliness, your church going. It's what went bleeding down from that tree. It's Jesus. You are covered by the blood of Jesus. We're going to end our, our time together. As we go into this Christmas week, we're going to take communion together. And um, here's what I want to encourage you to do. You can go ahead and grab uh, this here. If you did not get one, you can, um, there's going to be people that will make these available to you. If you're watching online, take a second, get juice or some kind of bread or cracker. And this is something Jesus asked us to do the same night, the same night, he stood before the high priest, a couple hours before he stood before that high priest and said that he will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That night, he took bread and he broke it and said, my body is, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out. My, my blood will come down as I'm nailed to that tree. That's given for you, a sacrifice. And he says, take this and do this in remembrance of me. 
In just a moment, I'm gonna pray and then um, we're gonna take this at both campuses. If you're here and, you're, and you say, look, I've called myself a Christian, but I've never really worshiped Jesus. I've never made Jesus my God. Give him your life today. Make him your God. Surrender completely. And maybe the way you do that is by taking communion for the first time with us today. If today um, you're not ready to say that, then hold off from taking communion because Jesus commanded us to do this act of worship as a declaration of that. So hold off, and that's fine. I'm just glad that you're here. But hold off if you're not ready to make that statement. But if you are, we're gonna take this sweet meal as a celebration of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our King. You reign for all time. You, you died on the cross, rose again from the grave, ascended to heaven, and you are seated at the right hand of God, and you rule for all time. Every day you rule, in every galaxy you rule, in every space on earth you rule, and our hope is only in you. We rest in you. You are our king. You are the incense before the, the ancient of days. You, we present you before the Ancient of Days as our incense, our offering because of your blood. We can stand before the throne. It's covering over the mercy seat. Thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. That alone is our salvation. We have no religion. We just have Jesus. That is what we put our hope in. We declare that meal knowing that our King will come again one day, waiting for you to come and your reign to be consummated. We wait for that day. We take this meal. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take that cup that you had and you can peel off that top plastic layer, or if you're at home, grab that bread or that cracker and take that wafer. And as you eat it, be reminded, he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken, pierced and striped for us. You can peel back that foil layer and there's juice that reminds us of the wine he served his disciples. He says, often you do this, do this in remembrance of me, his blood was shed. As you drink this, you taste the sweetness on your, in your mouth, as the flavor fills your mouth, be reminded that there's no sweeter taste or fragrance before God and for us the blood of Jesus that saves us. Amen. Church, we're going to close with a song and worship to our King, our God, the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me as we close? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.